You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. This is your access to world-class accounting leaders, global influencers, and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world-class. Sponsored by Dext. Make the businesses you advise more productive, profitable and powerful with better data and insights. Welcome to our Influencers in Accounting podcast with me, Rob Brown. This is the show, one of five going out every day of the week to the accounting and fintech world. This is the one where we bring on special guests and deep dive into particular topics. We're always looking around for the people with gravitas that have been there, done it, the true experts that go deep and know this world. I'm thrilled to have with me today, back again, Gary Seamus. Welcome, Gary. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be here. Gary, for people that haven't come across you, we'll put your previous episodes. You've done some great shows with us in the past. Uh, Give us a quick potted history of your world and your heritage in this game. It started with the, uh, with the, this will be a, a foreign topic to a lot of people on the phone. It started with something called the big eight. That's when there were eight accounting firms, not four accounting firms controlling the world. And I worked for uh, one of the big eight, uh, which is now uh, is Deloitte. And uh, from there in 1981, I uh, joined my dad in a small accounting firm in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, we had less than 10 people. And over the next uh, 34 years, we grew that to uh, the 37th largest firm in the United States, uh, 575 employees, $100 million. And uh, I was the managing partner for 27 years. Uh, we built that on three different strategies. One was a geographic strategy, which today is a little bit, uh, oh, not as, uh, I don't know, as beneficial as it was, because I think you could do a lot without geography today. Uh, the second element was we focused on a broader service approach, which really was comparable to the bigger firms at that point in time, uh, more of an advisory approach. So way back when advisory was not even thought of, we were very, very big in advisory. And then the third element is we drove, we really had, uh, dro- drove it, dove into uh, uh, six different verticals, in- industry verticals. So between those three strategies, uh, we had organic growth of about 85%, M&A of 15% and ended up where we were. Uh, in the beginning of 15, uh, I sold my firm to BDO, uh, BDO fifth largest firm in the world and it was their largest transaction that they had ever ha- had in 104 years. So it was a major transaction. Uh, I had a deal, I went over to BDO and thought I could be useful and turned out not so much. So uh, I left there after uh, uh, two years um, and I still wanted to continue working. So I launched a consulting uh, program or practice called Winding River Consulting. We're finishing our sixth year right now. And uh, we do uh, uh, we do three things for accounting firms. We do leadership development training. Uh, we do digital uh, presence and digital strategy. And then we do advisory for firms. And today, uh, the top 100 firms in the country, we probably do work for probably about 50% of them. So uh, we're off to a good start and uh, it's really been a lot of fun. And uh, and I think we're doing a good job because they keep coming back to us. But uh, our real game plan is here. We want to be able to provide extraordinary value to firms. Uh, and, uh, and so far, so good. But you're still very much in the game. And uh, what kind of shape do you feel the accounting profession is in right now, Gary? We're t- going to talk about private equity money today and a piece you've written recently. But just give us a general uh, vibe for where we're at. 
Well, I mean, private equity, I, you know, I, I love to talk about it and I'm happy we'll, we are. And um, I don't know if I would call that like a one-off or like a sidebar. Um, a lot of interest, a lot of discussion. But, you know, 47,000 firms in the United States, three of them have done private equity. So, you know, let's think of it as a sidebar, okay? Um, the real big issue to me in, in, in public accounting today is this uh, uh, is the lack of talent increase in amount of work we're doing because of the bureaucratic nature of what we do, regulations, things like that. And there's not enough accountants. And uh, if you look at the pipeline, the pipeline's not getting any better, uh, especially in the United States. Uh, it's really going the wrong way. So that's the really big challenge. The big challenge is how do you go forward without this uh, this talent that you had in the past? And uh, and that affects all 47,000 firms, not the three firms that have done private equity. So that to me is the big issue, um, and uh, and we'll talk about it. But we'll definitely get you on an episode and talk about the the capital human capital problem. Uh, but for now, this piece on private equity, you titled it in that we're, we're almost coming back around history repeating itself. We're seeing a a changing in private equity and venture capital money getting more and more interested in fintech and accounting firms. What are they seeing in the profession that they're buying into, Gary? Well, I think what they are seeing is I think they're seeing a tremendous amount of pressure to deploy money and they're looking at, at places they never have looked before. Um, and, uh, you know, especially with uh, the way the economy has made this quick pivot now and, uh, and coming off of COVID, um, you know, they, you know, their job is uh, these private equities get a tremendous amount of capital put in there. They get to pull a couple points of uh, out of that capital to run their businesses, but they don't make any real money until they have a transaction. So uh, they need to deploy that money and make money for people. And there's a tremendous amount of competition in general. You know, so a couple of them basically, you know, began focusing outside and, uh, um, and there has been a couple deals um, in uh, public accounting and CPA industry in the United States. And uh, probably uh, what's a really interesting element from that is that uh, for the three deals that have been done, there's probably been a thousand private equities that have been sniffing around. So a bunch of them see the deal. And, um, you know, I, I probably don't go a week or two without getting a phone call from somebody to want to understand more about it uh, through some channel or another. Um, so a lot of them are looking at this industry going forward. The one thing that they like about the industry, um, and uh, it's probably the strongest uh, attribute, is the steady cash flow. Um, you know, so, and I always just, you know, you do, if you do a tax return for somebody and you do a good job and you're going to probably do that tax return next year. It's monthly and annual recurring revenues, isn't it? It's a beautiful model. So, so that model they like a lot. And, and that really proved itself out in the 2008 recession in other places that uh, I don't want to say that the industry is recession proof, but it has a bunch of buffers in there that make it, uh, you know, so it doesn't get hurt as bad because you still have to do an audit. You still have to do a tax return uh, for companies, assuming that they, uh, you know, the companies don't have problems. And, you know, that's, 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 this gives them this recurring revenue, which is really, that's probably the number one attribute. Once you get under the covers, you know, I think then you find some of the real challenges. Well, if you lead an accounting firm, you, you're getting more and more curious. You point this out in your article, and we'll put the link in our show notes, that uh, as a leader of an accounting firm, bringing a huge amount of capital in like that, it, it uh, boosts the equity model that partners are putting money in the pot. So it gives you a lot to play with. If, if, if a firm um, is going to continue on uh, a straight and narrow path, I'm not sure how much capital it needs. I mean, how expensive are computers? 
you know, how much are, uh, you know, is, is software to, uh, to acquire um, office space, you know, which was some capital, you know, that is diminished in terms of the uh, pandemic. So I, I'm not sure in the general course of business, it makes much difference. And having run an accounting firm for 27 years, you know, the way I got capital is I pulled it from my partners. Either they gave it to me or we gave them less profitability. And even if we pulled it from them, I don't know any of them who missed any meals. Uh, you know, we still did pretty well and there was enough capital to reinvest into the business. So one place that I see advantage to it is uh, is building out an advisory model. And, uh, and building out an advisory model is critical to the success of these private equities who buy them. And we could talk about that in a minute. Uh, but how do you build out an advisory model? And uh, there's three ways to build out an advisory model. One is to take an advisory program and build it. Um, and, but we all know that takes time. And we know all know private equities have a, a short time fuse of three to seven years. So I don't know if you have enough time to do it. Probably not. Um, in, in my firm, we had built out numerous advisory types of uh, uh, programs. And I would every one of them took 15 years or more. So it's not a good fit. The second way is to partner with somebody. Um, so what does that mean? That means if you want to add wealth management and you're not doing it, you find someone to do wealth management and you don't have that capital uh, necessity uh, uh, because you're not buying their firm, you're getting some commissions or something like that. But there's all kinds of elements with that transaction that are difficult. And the third way is to buy a company. And that's where advisory money could be helpful. So if you want to buy a wealth management company, could a CPA firm do that? Well, if it was a really big CPA firm and a small wealth management company, probably. But if it was a medium-sized CPA firm and a medium-sized wealth management, could they afford to buy that? Probably not. So that's the one place that I think this capital could make a difference. Um, and I think uh, um, you know that really is a short list for me in terms of this necessity for capital. And a lot of this discussion is firms don't have the capital going forward. I just have a hard time buying that. You allude to the timescales in your piece and uh, a direct quote when you talk about no clarity. You say private equity firms operate on a fixed time horizon, usually five to seven years. And that's not a lot of time to build and scale successful advisory businesses or to solve the challenge of how to generate incremental profits from an accounting practice. And then you go on to say how highly complex accounting firms are and and delivering a quite amount of growth is a challenge that few PE firms have solved. Just unpack that a little bit for us. It, it, you know, that really boils down to the question is, uh, you know, these PE firms, you know, what are they trying to accomplish? And what they're trying to accomplish is they're trying to take what you're, what they're buying from you on day one, and they're trying to enhance that profitability. So when they sell that down the road, they'll make more money. So the two ways they make more money um, is that they could sell it at a higher multiple. So if they don't can't make a penny on it, but if they buy it from you at 10 to one and sell it down the road at 12 to one, they made money on it, okay? Or the other way is to take that uh, the, the, the 10 to one, the one multiply factor and increase that from one to two. So if that goes from one to two and you're at a 10 to one, now you're gonna get 20 to, uh, you know, so, so you'll make additional money. So, so this is all based upon uh, those two factors. So the first factor in terms of the multiple, um, this is the place that right now um, you can see them get some quick hits. And, and by that, what, what happens is if they can go buy another accounting firm at seven to one, um, and then they can go and sell that down the road at 10 to one, they created an arbitrage. And through that arbitrage, uh, they can make some additional dollars. Um, that's one way to do it. 
So that is kind of manufactured. It's not organic. The organic way to do it is to build incremental revenues. And that's very challenging. You know, having been in the accounting world for running an accounting firm for 27 years, it's hard to go look at an accounting firm and be smart enough to figure out how to make additional dollars to uh, increase those revenues. And how would you do that? Well, are you going to make your partners work harder? Are you going to pay your people less? Are you going to try and change your rates? There's a lot of things you could do, but could you make a really substantial difference to the, and and I don't, I think the answer is no. And uh, so, so I, you know, I refer in the article, I go back to the CBiz model. In the early 90s, CBiz gobbled up a bunch of firms in the United States in a public model. They didn't go public. They were already a public company. They were shell. And uh, what happened was when they first started, they acquired, I don't know, 50 or 100 CPA firms that were smaller firms, say $2 million a firm. They had 100 firms of $2 million. They had $200 million of uh, bandwidth or market share in the CPA industry in the United States. If you look at CBiz today, CBiz today is a $1.4 billion company. And the accounting firm is $400 million. It doubled in 25 years. But the advisory practice is a hundred is a billion dollars. So they realized that that incremental dollars they had to use to fund this public company it had to come from somewhere. So they chose advisory. Uh, in the beginning days, the stock sold at seven bucks a share, went up to twenty three when they were really rowing back to seven or six bucks a share. Today it's forty five dollars a share, and uh, and I credit that with them building out this advisory practice. So um. To me, the real answer for these private equities is to increase inc incremental revenues. They need to do it through building these advisory practices. And like I said, you know, if that's what you have to do, you'd think it'd be nice to have the capital to, uh, to build that out. Now, then you got to ask yourself the question on the integration, how long does that take? You know, if they want to exit in five years and they can't buy an advisory for two years, they buy the advisory, is three years enough to start getting additional uh, organic growth uh, through uh, cross-selling to existing clients. You know, there's a lot of obstacles to get there. So, uh, you know, so, so that's how you potentially unpack it is what they have to do is they have to do one of those two elements in order to be successful. And Gary, you talk in the piece about the complicated nature of accounting firms. Talk to us a little bit about to what degree a managing partner has to compromise when they bring in private equity money, because you're talking to private equity firms, you're talking to managing partners all the time. You're on both sides of the fence. Both sides have got to get something out of it. I spend a lot of my life dealing with private equities. Um, I spent a lot of my life dealing with private equities when we had my CPA firm, and that was really on the restaurant side. That was our largest vertical. Uh, we actually even, uh, our New York office was a shared office with the private equity, the largest private equity in the restaurant space. Uh, they had raised a couple billion dollars. Um, so we spent a lot of time with them. Uh, we represented them. Uh, they were buying our clients. Uh, when I, uh, uh, in my firm, when I had the firm, uh, when private equity started to become much more popular, we were noticing that uh, uh, in, a, in a very hurtful way, we were losing clients left and right because they were being acquired by private equity. You know, the old, uh, uh, and, and private equity was never really a significant vehicle in terms of succession planning for businesses. You know, you kept them internally. They were, you know, the quote, family businesses, all that kind of stuff. And now all of a sudden private equity is there and they're there in a big, big, big way. So at our firm, you know, we noticed it and we said, you know, we need to start representing these private equities because if not, we're not going to have any business left over. So we made a major effort in terms of uh, shifting our firm uh, to try and begin doing private equity work. And we were very successful. And I don't know how many we ended up uh, representing, maybe a dozen or so. 
but one dozen private equity could be 20 or 30 portfolio companies. And if you have 12 of them and they have 30 portfolio companies, now you got 360 companies and, you know, who knows, $100,000 a company. And now all of a sudden you got $20 million in business, you know, on the private equity side. And then uh, they're having transactions all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I, we got to work with them a lot. So one of the questions and one of the things I asked in the article was, uh, um, uh, and maybe actually refer to my uh, my first cousin is the uh, he runs a private equity in Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, we were playing golf and I was going through the whole article and telling him he was really interested. They didn't do anything in the uh, financial or accounting space, but he was really interested. And um, and I was telling him, you know, one of the things, you know, that uh, would really kind of concern me is if I'm the managing partner, my new partner who probably has controlling interest is a private equity. And his response to me says, well, there's not going to be any gray there. You know, you're going to know exactly what they're looking for. And what they're looking for is a return on investment. So now you have a partner uh, whose only focus is a return on investment. And what you're doing is now you're the managing partner of these very complicated organizations that are full of people. And you're trying to implement this, this um, demanded growth rates um, in these organizations. And it's kind of like, if you don't make it, well, what happens to you? Well, they'll replace you. You don't have control anymore. So um, I think you really have to ask yourself, you know, um, if you're going to be the ones who are going to be continuing to run the organization, is this the kind of partner you want to have? Because you're ceding control and autonomy, Gary, aren't you, in some ways? There's a well, they, well the United States, every deal has been a control deal. There, 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 there's been no minority investment. It's all been majority investment. So you lose control. So you, you know, you're going to respond to what they ask you to do. And if you don't, I'm pretty sure you're not going to be there any longer. Uh, so now you're picking up. Now, maybe it's not a bad thing. I mean, maybe for your firm, you know, you were too loose and you didn't focus properly. And there was a lot of money left on the table and they're not going to let that happen. But probably not. Probably, you know, you ran a pretty good accounting firm. A private equity wanted to buy that. Uh, I don't think they want to buy a, a fixer upper. And, uh, and uh, you know, so you now have a partner who's going to be very focused on bottom line. And then you're dealing, you know, with uh, Joes and Susies and, uh, and individuals and, uh, and all the things that could happen and deadlines and all that. And it's going to be uh, all prompted by one thing. And again, it's not going to be great. It's going to be making money. The other thing we're seeing is private equity are not just getting their fingers into public accounting firms, but they're going after the fintech too. They like the data. They like the scale of those. Again, it's a monthly recurring fee and a SaaS type model, a lot of it. And getting access to the techs and the software gives them control often of the accounting firms and the clients. Unpack that a little bit for us. Uh, I know my limitations and I and I know <laughs> and I know I don't know that much about it. So I don't want to hit there and tell you I'm a you know real expert of what they're looking at. But it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if they're buying a machine shop or they're buying a CPA firm. There's one goal, and the goal is to enhance profitability or enhance leverage and be able to get more money out of it. Yeah. So if you are going to be in a fintech, I mean, you have to realize that's what they're trying to do. Let's circle back around, Gary. You started the article by saying, is history repeating itself? So we're in a world of cycles, aren't we? And seasons and things come back around, recessions come back private equity money comes back. Just write the future for us for the next few years. Is this going to keep happening and keep happening? What's coming up? I need you to put a bookmark down because I want to come back and I want to talk about uh, one element of these private equity deals between young partners and old partners. It's really critical. So let's not forget that. You know, I suppose I, I'm the one probably more so than anybody because of uh, my length in the profession. I lived through what happened in the 90s. 
um, in uh, in terms of consolidation within the industry. Um, I happen to be the uh, I was the chair of the AICPA MAP committee, managing an accounting practice. And at that point in time, the AICPA was trying to prevent uh, these rollups of going along. They, they were trying to do it through uh, through the uh, through a public company not being able to do an audit, and thus this, uh, these public companies uh, they were able to develop this alternative alternative motive or alternative way to do it. So they figured out how to do it. AICPA was fighting them. There was lawsuits in place. Um, I think they called it alternative practice model. That's what they still call it today. Um, and uh, what happened finally in the mid '90s, the ACPA and and they must have had they must have known how this was going to end. Um, they backed off and they said, "Okay, let's let it happen." So I'm chairing this committee, and uh, and you're seeing these mega companies: American Express, H and R Block, Centerprise, uh, CBiz. Um, they're all kind of like uh, they're buzzards, uh, you know, hovering <laughs> over, uh, you know, looking what's uh, you know what what's going to be happening down there. And all of a sudden, they were they were uh, released. So on a moment's notice, uh, this maybe had been like I want to say May or June, nineteen ninety five. Uh, what we did is we put together a uh, a uh, a conference where the uh, the the profession met the consolidators. It was in Naples. It was at the Ritz. Uh, we had seven hundred people at this conference, and it sold out. We had people coming there who weren't even there, trying to throw money at us to come in. It was just unbelievable. Uh, we had CBiz taking trolley cars to take people out for dinner to people's. It just was. It just was just an unbelievable show. So um, it was kind of crazy, and uh, and what had happened was, I mean, the end result back then was uh, CBiz bought you know a couple hundred companies. American Express got started. They bought a few companies. H and R Block got in it. They bought some companies. Uh, there was a startup. Uh, called Center Prize, uh, UHY, they were first originally called Center Prize. They bought up eight or 10 companies that were bought up. Um, and uh, that was really it. Those were the four consolidators. So look today, okay, um, and see what happened. Well, you heard the CBiz story. They've been very successful when they left public accounting to start this company. UHY, um, they are still in business today. They're probably the same size they were back then, haven't been able to grow. They ended up acquiring a ton of debt to buy CPA firms, and they ended up selling uh, their firm in Houston to BDO, and they used that money to pay off some of their debt, but they're just a run-of-the-mill large CPA firm. Uh, American Express, they they ended up selling to RSM, and uh, well, they ended up selling first to H&R Block, and then H&R Block ended up selling to RSM. So um, of those companies, none of them really succeeded in the way they expected to succeed moving forward. So are we smarter today than we were then? We'll find out. But uh, we weren't as smart as we thought we were when we tried to do this 25 years ago. Goodness, it's a crazy space. And that even now, there's a lot going on. We've seen the recent GHD, BKD merger and firms themselves are getting into bed with one another. And no firms are too big to merge and get together, are they? No, and that's a whole other interesting discussion too. Let's maybe just mention that for a second. And uh, um, you know, we work with you know we work with every firm. I mean, we work with the biggest firms, the Markhams of the world, and uh, at a billion dollars. And we work with BDO and BDO Alliance. So we work with all the big firms, and we work with a lot of smaller firms too. Really, pretty much top. I want to say top two hundred firms in the United States. Um, maybe a little bit, you know, once in a while below that as well. Um, but 
you know, what I tell a lot of these firms, and it really depends on some markets, but there's some markets that are incredibly opportunistic because of what you're talking about. And, um, you know, I'll tell you, um, you know, a market, uh, two markets that are incredibly opportunistic. One is Philadelphia and the other is Cleveland, because almost every major player in those markets that were medium sized to large size CPA firms consolidated up. You go to a market like Atlanta, and it's not so because in Atlanta, what you have is you have four or five very large, uh, you know, mid-sized firms, hundred million dollar firms. None of them got consolidated up. But in these markets where there's a, where's this consolidation, all of a sudden you're finding that your competitors are now really pushing, you know, toward the upper end of the market, you know, upper uh, upper middle market, you know, lower uh, public firm market. And it's created this, this void um, in terms of the solid middle market. So I think some firms have huge opportunities as you find your competitors now billion dollar companies. And uh, so there are, you know, there's, there, there's more, there's, you know, you know, Markman Friedman, that was a billion dollars. Uh, the four of this was, uh, that's a billion dollars. And, you know, so, you know, you know what a lot of this is and nobody really kind of realizes this, I don't think, but uh, in 2001, when Sarbanes-Oxley came, what happened was uh, the middle, the upper end of the middle market and the lower end of the public market was dominated by the big eight, absolutely dominated by the big eight or the big four, whatever you want to call it. When Sarbanes happened in the United States, it created 15% more revenues for accounting firms with not one account. So based upon that, you saw the big four firms starting to just service the, their, their major clients and they didn't have capacity to do these smaller clients. These smaller clients are, you know, $500 million uh, companies. And over the last 20 years, that entire piece of the market has been absorbed and they've been absorbed in these billion dollar companies right now. Took 20 years to do it, but that's the results of Sarbanes 20 years later. Gary, just finally, we'll put your contact details on Wine in River in our show notes so people can reach out to you if they want. You wanted to remark on the younger versus older partner generational gap there. What have you got to say on that? Yeah, I, that is to me is a really, really interesting thing to think about. And I think that's probably the one dynamic that's probably the most interesting in what's happening in private equity. So let's look at those two elements. Let's look at the older partner. So you're a 65-year-old partner about ready to retire, okay? And in the United States, what does that mean? That meant if you were making $500,000 a year um, on average, um, you would probably get paid 500,000 times two and a half is a million two hundred fifty thousand dollars U.S. divided by 10 or $125,000 a year for the next 10 years as deferred compensation for your practice. That's pretty standard in the United States. Um, ordinary income over 10 years. Private equity comes in and they say, listen, I want to buy your practice, sir. And uh, I see where we were going to pay you a million two fifty over the next 10 years. Well, here's the deal. We're going to buy your practice and now we're going to pay you $2 million and we'll give you all the money at once. And it's going to be taxed at a significantly lower rate because it's a capital gain in the United States. So you're a senior partner and you're saying, where do I sign? Uh, no risk, more money in my pocket, uh, mitigate risk uh, because I get it all at once. Um, where do I sign? You're a 35 year old partner. Okay. And uh, now what's going to happen to you? Okay, what's going to happen to you is your life at this point is going to be filled with a bunch of question marks. Um, and uh, and the and the, the the brokers and the private equities are going to try and convince you that this is the better thing for you, but the reality is you don't know. And the only way it's a better thing to you is based upon what that exit looks like in five to seven years. So you're taking your career, okay, that you knew what you were going to be getting, and now you have huge question marks. 
And look who your uh, partner is. Now you're partnering with the private equity as opposed to the people you knew. So basically what that's done is that's taken the younger partners and the older partners and they put them into a direct conflict with one another, a direct conflict where the older partners are saying, how soon can I get out of this thing? And the younger partners are saying, well, what happens to me? So it's an incredible dynamic. I think it's a very uncomfortable dynamic. And, uh, it, and you know, I think that could be a big reason why, uh, you know, that it just, it's just, it, it's a hard thing to sell. And if you can't get the younger partners to go along with it, how could you be a private equity in buying this practice, knowing that all the engines you have are going to leave? You know, so what do you do? It's a very, very interesting dynamic. It is. It's a real conundrum. And uh, there's nobody better to navigate through it than you, Gary. It's been terrific talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Sponsored by Advanced Track, helping you as an accountant confidently choose between outsourcing and offshoring. Oh, 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 oh,